message is, but, I, but it, it'll, it'll come around. So I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Can we do that? Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to start with a quotation tonight. This quotation is from the New York Times several years ago. It's from a lady who was a victim of, or her whole family except for her, uh, was a victim of the genocide that happened in Rwanda. And there was a big reconciliation project that happened there. And this is her quotation about what happened after men came into her village, killed all of the men, did unspeakable things to the women, and took their children and enslaved them. This is what she said. After I was chased from my village and Dominique and others looted it. He has a name. Dominique and others looted it. I became homeless and insane. Later, when he asked my pardon, I said, I have nothing to feed my children. Are you going to help raise my children? Are you going to build a house for them? The next week, Dominique came with some survivors and former prisoners who per perpetrated genocide. There were more than 50 of them, and they built my family a house. Ever since then, I have started to feel better. I was like a dry stick, and now I feel peaceful in my heart, and I share this peace with my neighbors. Amen. So what I'm here to talk about tonight is uncomfortable grace. Uh, and the first thing I want to say, I'm going to turn this a little bit. Uh, the first thing I want to say about grace is that it is always uncomfortable. Uh, grace is always uncomfortable because we think we should earn everything we've got. Uh, and grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. And as I say that, if you don't leave with anything else tonight, what I want you to know is that if you drill down into the very core of the gospel, what you will find there is enemy love. Enemy love is at the very center of the gospel. I'm going to try to make that case to you tonight, that enemy love is at the very center of the gospel. So we want to earn everything that we have, especially as Americans. This is the American dream, right? If I work hard, I can get whatever I want and provide for myself. If I make the grades, I can get the job where I can make the money. If I live in a certain way, I can get the spouse that I want. Amen? None of y'all are here for dating. I know. that Not at this campus ministry, just at the other ones I've been to. We, we think that we can earn it. And so by nature, grace is uncomfortable. Uh, the last time I, I preached specifically on enemy love was several years ago. It seems like I only do this as a guest speaker, I guess, so I don't get run out of town afterwards. Uh, so I, I got to speak on this. Uh, one of my friends was doing a sermon series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, she asked me to come and speak on, on enemy love. And at that time, this was, this was 2015, uh, what I said was, most of you think that you don't have any enemies. But that was a different time, 2015. We are a lot more polarized as a nation, as a society, as a world now. And I would bet that some of you could identify some enemies if I asked you tonight. I won't ask you. But even if you can't identify people like that woman could, Dominique, I would bet that there are political persuasions or uh, other schools that are rivals or something that you could name that you just don't have any patience for. And 
in this world of polarization, we don't know who we can be friends with anymore. And that's some of what y'all have been talking about over the last few weeks. And we've seen this play out in the national media just in the last couple of weeks as well. Uh, any of y'all get into the Ellen uh, George W. Bush? Uh, yeah, any, any of y'all interested in that drama? Can, can, a, can a liberal, obviously liberal person and a former Republican president sit and watch a game together? And then as, as people ask that question and she defends it, other people say, well, of course they can be friends. They're both rich. It's easy for rich people to be friends, even if they disagree. And so we don't know who it's appropriate for us to be friends with. And then even more recently than that, uh, there was the Amber Geiger case, right? Um, this police officer who went into an apartment that thought it, she thought it was hers, uh, she shot the man who lived there uh, and was convicted, and afterwards, the sibling of the man who was killed offered her forgiveness. And some people praised her, and other people had a lot to say about the way that that assuaged white guilt in a way that we have to pay attention to. Once again, we don't know who we can be friends with. We don't know what it looks like to forgive. We don't know what it looks like to love our enemies. And it's really hard for us to forge an identity in a polarized world that doesn't look like one of two things. I am what I am for, and I will adamantly defend those things, or I am what I am against, and I will adamantly fight against the people who oppose me. Right? I'm what I'm for or I'm what I am against. These are the ways that we can identify ourselves in the world most easily. And enemy love is at the center of the gospel. It's not a minor theme. And I'm not going to read you all the passages I wanted to read tonight because Katie would chasten me afterwards. But I do want to read a few. And I hope that some of them will bring together some of what you've been talking about in terms of uncomfortable grace for the last couple of weeks and push us even a little bit further into specifically what it looks like to love our enemies, even those that have a name. So I'm going to start with Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm just going to read a few verses here, uh, and then we'll move from there. Let's pray before we start reading God's Word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you that the Spirit that was with its authors is with us now. We pray that that spirit would soften our hearts, that it would open our minds, that it would give us understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly tonight, directly to every person in every chair, and I pray that all of us could leave edified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul in Ephesians is talking about the nature of the gospel, and he's He's talking about it in a particular way. There's a long-term division in the ancient world between Gentiles and Jews. Paul has been a Jew, a Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's been the best Jew, okay? Uh, and Jews and Gentiles did not get along. And he's talking about how the gospel brings them together. And as he, as he sums up what he's saying, he says this, Although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What is the mystery of the plan hidden for ages in God who is the creator, creator of all things? What is that mystery? That through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? That the mystery of the gospel for ages is that the diversity of the church can testify to the heavenly places what the rich variety of God looks like. That's what we're called to as a church. And for that to happen, it starts to look like people who should not be together, praising God together. Uh, so that's, that's one way it's at the core of what we're talking about. Another is in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so this is uh, Matthew 5, but the sermon keeps going past this. In fact, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. And he teaches them the prayer that we just prayed together, the Lord's Prayer. But before he says that, this is what he says about anger. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. And later he says, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your cloak, your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. In Romans 5, in Romans 5, this is what Paul says. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. It's always harder to find scripture passages when I'm in front of people than when I'm in the pew. Uh, I'm sure some of you have experienced that as well. I'm just not eager enough to turn enough pages, I guess. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says it again differently in Colossians, and this is the last one I'm going to read. This is Colossians 1, verse 21. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. You who once were estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds against God, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before God the Father. The reason I wanted to read multiple passages is that I didn't want you to think that any of these are outliers. And so as we think about what it means for enemy love to be at the center of the gospel, it starts with our discomfort with grace. We're willing to say, yeah, I, I was a sinner and Christ saved me, but I don't know if we're willing to say that apart from the grace of God, we were hostile to God. 
that our actions were actually opposed to God in every possible way, that we were estranged from God, separated from him, not on talking terms any longer. And in the midst of that kind of brokenness, Jesus set aside his glory and his comfort and his reign in the heavenly places, and he descended to earth to love and to die for us who were hostile in mind and estranged from him. This is the very basic truth of the gospel, that Jesus loved his enemies enough to die for them. Maybe for a good person, you'd be willing to die. But outside of the gospel, outside of the gospel, are you eager to die for someone who has sinned against you and is hostile to you and estranged from you? Is that your disposition because it is God's towards you? Talk about uncomfortable grace. This is who God is to us. So I asked you earlier if you have enemies, and I want to propose that you do. And if you, if you wonder why I have to say this, I, the reason is that when I was in seminary, my Old Testament professor assigned to us imprecatory psalms, that's a seminary word for you, uh, that basically means the psalm is praying for the destruction of your enemy. You're praying that your enemy will be defeated and destroyed and annihilated by the Lord of the universe. That's what those psalms do. We don't read them a whole lot in church because they're pretty uncomfortable. And so we had to read them over and over and over again and journal about them. And about two weeks into this, my journal became like, I don't really think I have any enemies. Why, why do I have to keep praying about my enemies? Why are the psalms asking me to do this? And some of our enemies are easy to see. Some of you might have deeply broken relationships in your family or with your friends or with people in your community that you know they are your enemies and you could identify them by name if I asked. And sometimes these are even in bigger ways, like I said, that these things move into categories where we know that we have ideological enemies and we don't know how to love them either. So sometimes some of us have easy-to-see enemies, but all of us also have invisible enemies. And it's not by accident that oftentimes our enemies are invisible. Society has been intentionally structured this way, uh, and we structure our lives this way. How many of you have hit that unfollow button on Facebook when you see post after post about things you don't want to see? So a few nods, yeah? Um, and sometimes that's healthy for our souls to not want to go to battle every time we see those things and fight it out uh, with our little keyboard uh, fingers or with our thumbs. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But we hide our enemies from ourselves on social media. And our government keeps us very safe in a way that hides our enemies from us otherwise. So there are people on your behalf right now uh, somewhere in the United States flying drones over other parts of the world fighting your enemies. Like, that is happening right now. And because you don't see them, you might think that you don't have enemies. But there are people in the world who would like for you to be dead just because you're an American. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing in terms of who deserves what. I'm just saying that's a reality, that we have real enemies in the world simply because of who we are that we can't see. 
And the same thing happens in our communities. Where we live in our communities keeps us mostly with people like us. And so it's much easier for us to live as if we don't have enemies than if all of us were living in the same space and working for and living with the same resources. So sometimes our enemies are invisible. Sometimes they're really obvious. And sometimes we don't know why we are enemies with other people. Uh, this, is, this is the classic story of the Hatfields and McCoys, right? It's the story, anybody have to read Romeo and Juliet in about ninth or 10th grade? Yeah. The Capulets and the Montagues, they've been feuding for so long that the kids don't know why they can't fall in love with each other. But the families know that that is not who they are. They are defined by what they're opposed to, and they do not know how to get past it, and they don't know how they got there. They haven't been able to tell the, the fullness of the story of who killed who and who made who mad to get to that point, but there they are. Uh, there's a beautiful song by, by Jason Isbell and the drive-by truckers called Decoration Day that tells the story of, the, um, of, of a, two families in Florence, Alabama. And I won't tell you the whole story, but, but it's feuding families and what's really captivating about the song is that at the end, it's, it's sung in the, in the first person. At the end, what he says is, if I were a member of the other family, I'd still be fighting in the same way against, against my family. It has nothing to do with my own animosity. It has everything to do with how I've been raised to hate this other family. So sometimes our enemies are invisible. Sometimes we don't even know how we got there. Uh, I would bet that some of you have had fights before with parents or significant others that drug on for so long that you just knew you were fighting and you didn't even remember what started it. Anybody have that? Just, just me? Okay. Don't ask Katie. She, uh, she might tell you the truth. Um, so, so sometimes this happens that our enemies get so entrenched in the short term or in the long term that we don't even know what we're fighting about, but we know that we have been wronged and our inclination is retaliation. This is our natural human response when we are wronged, is if we are hurting, we want the other person to hurt. And as we do that, what, what happens when we retaliate is almost always we escalate, right? Uh, you slap me, I punch you, we brawl, and then it gets worse, right? Uh, then somebody pulls a weapon, and it, gets, it continues on. And this happens in our emotional fights as well, that we continue to up the ante as we stand at odds with one another. This is a natural response to our enemies, that we want them to hurt at least as much, if not more, for what we want. So all of us have enemies, whether we can see them or not. And the gospel at the very center of the gospel is enemy love. That we have been loved by a God who loved us and died for us when we were hostile to him and enemies of him. So the call that Jesus offers after he teaches the Lord's Prayer, he teaches this whole prayer that we know, but what he comes back to at the end of the Lord's Prayer is that little part about trespasses. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So this idea is woven through the whole Sermon on the Mount, that if you're angry, you better find a way to reconcile, that if you're harmed, you should turn the other cheek, that if someone sues you, you should be generous in response. This comes up in, at the end of Romans 12 as well. 
uh, where Paul mimics Jesus's language. And something he says there has always, always both comforted me and unsettled me. What he says is, don't seek revenge because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And so the question I want to ask you tonight is what does it look like for the Lord to love his enemies? The Lord does the Lord does destroy his enemies. Each of us, if we are in Christ, have been destroyed as enemies of God, not because of his wrath, but because of the earth-shaking, world-flipping nature of the gospel that disorients and reorients our lives. We who once were enemies in Christ have the chance to become friends. We who once were enemies of God now have the chance to become friends. And as we experience that uncomfortable grace with God himself, the only natural response is to begin to offer that uncomfortable grace to others. This doesn't mean that everybody gets a get-out-of-jail-free card and they can do whatever they want. Uh, Enemy love does not always lead to reconciliation. Let me say that again. Enemy love does not always lead to reconciliation. Reconciliation requires both people to want it. And this is true in God's love for us, right? We, we're not just reconciled to God because Christ has come and loved us. We have to respond to that grace in a way that says, Christ, I want to experience the fullness of your love. And so the, the story that I read at the very beginning where the woman had been reconciled to her enemy, Dominique, who had come through and destroyed her village and her home and killed her family. He wanted to reconcile as well. And so he came with a group of 50 men to rebuild her house and to continue to seek to provide for her family so that they could be restored and live in community together. I started tonight by saying that in a polarized world, There are two ways that we can forge our identity, by what we're for, by what we want to advocate for and work towards, or by what we're against, what we want to stop at all costs. But there is another place for us to find our identity, and that is in the uncomfortable, enemy-loving grace of Jesus Christ. And when we abide in that grace, we begin to live in a different kind of way, where we are capable not of the escalating retaliation of an ongoing seeking for justice and for vengeance, but where we trust God for justice in a really radical way and where we seek to love our enemies who have names or who don't in the same way that God has loved us, in a way that takes our enemies and somehow by the miraculous power of God turns them into our friends. This is how Christians destroy our enemies, is to love them, sometimes even at cost, until they become our friends. We pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, truly your grace is uncomfortable for us, and it's uncomfortable for us to offer that kind of grace to others. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts so that we could wrestle, so that we could wrestle with what it looks like to love our enemies. 
Not so that we can imagine that as Christians we don't have any enemies, but so that reckoning with the real wrong that has been done against us and the real wrong that we have perpetrated against others, we can seek to be reconciled and live at peace and in a peace that gives life to all and testifies to the power of your gospel even in the heavenly places. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.